that you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 21. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27. Now, we looked at the section immediately preceding this last time, considering how God commands justice, the ultimate justice for those who attack him by taking the life of those who bear his image. But now those case laws go on and in a slightly different way. Starting at verse 18, he says, When men quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear only. He shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm... Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Priestly people of God, through Christ our Redeemer. The legal statutes we've just read were given by God to His people roughly 3,400 years ago. They were exceptionally useful and applicable to society. Three and a half millennia past. Why did he cause those statutes to be recorded and preserved for us so long later? I mean, the creation story we can understand, right? That tells us where we came from. Understanding that is essential to understanding our purpose, our role, our origin. Likewise, the stories of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the chosen people of God. It's exceptionally helpful to understand how God called and chose and used Abraham. Also the Exodus narrative. I mean, those stories make it clear that God cares about His people immensely, that God is greater than the false gods of this world, that God can be trusted to deliver His people. We need the Exodus narrative. But how to adjudicate the legal case of a man who wounds another man in a fight? Or how to execute justice against a man who wounds his slave? What do those have to do with us today? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How does this fit with that? Well, my friends, it fits because the man of God is defined 
not merely by his salvation from sin. The man of God is defined by his discipleship, by his yearning to live a life that is molded and shaped by the instruction of God. The man of God is defined by his submission to the one whom he trusts as king, to mold his morality, to direct his family life, to guide even his governmental decrees. And this text is part of that. It's part of God showing his holy people the justice for which they should strive. It's part of God teaching his image bearers to reflect his just nature. It's part of our learning how to reveal the very nature and character of God in the world where we live. These legal statutes reveal our holy God as the standard for justice. And that's our theme this morning. Our holy God sets the standard for justice and especially for just sentencing. Our holy God sets the standard for just sentencing. And we see that first in his command of support for a beaten brawler. Verse 18 sets the scene for us. Two men are quarreling. They're having a disagreement and it turns physical. They allow their passions to grow too hot, and one of the men strikes another, or the other, whether by his fist or by a stone or some other implement. It's a hard hit. It lays the guy out. Now, one of two things is going to happen. Either that hit will have been hard enough to kill the man, or he will survive, but he's wounded. He's badly hurt. In this case, he survives, but painfully. He's confined to his bed. Question that needs to be answered is how shall the judge in this case handle it? I mean, if the man had died, we know what justice demands. Verse 12 says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. This was a willful act. It was not an accident. Therefore, the man would be put to death. But here, the victim survives. It wasn't murder. But it was a serious event. While both men seemed to have been at fault, since both were quarreling, the one who struck the other took it too far. He attacked one who bears the image of God, thereby showing contempt for God himself. But does he deserve death for that? No, because his victim survived. The sin was serious, but the victim is recovering, and therefore the assailant will ultimately go free. You see, ancient Israel didn't use prisons and long-term incarceration because God never commanded long-term incarceration. As much as possible, He always commands that the punishment be immediate and fitting and just. And so here, the man would go free, but there would be consequences. There would be two consequences. First of all, the assailant would support his victim, paying for his loss of time, because it's exceedingly likely that this man had others depending on him, perhaps a wife and children, perhaps aged parents, perhaps just the cost of maintaining his home. But whatever and whoever is depending on him, they're depending on him. And while he's confined to bed with his injuries, he can't provide for them. His family should not be impoverished because of these wounds. And therefore, 
The man who struck him will help to support his family, will help to meet the needs of the one who was stricken. And at the same time, the assailant will have to pay for his getting well. Now you'll notice that what it says there is sort of vague. He says, he shall have him thoroughly healed. It's vague because what that involves will differ from case to case. It might involve doctor's bills. It might involve someone coming in to do physical therapy. It might involve some medications. Whatever it costs, whatever it involves, he's to ensure that this happens. Folks, understand what's described here is justice. The one who committed the assault, he's not going to lose his life or his liberty. The victim survived and so will he. And he won't just physically survive while languishing for years in a prison. No, he's going to be productive moving forward. And God's going to show him how to do that by forcing him to deal with the consequences of his specific act. His act caused this man to lose his livelihood for a time, therefore he will make up for the loss of this man's livelihood. His act caused this man to be wounded, to be injured, therefore he himself will cause the man to be healed. That's strict justice. And that shows us something. That's really the lesson in these first two verses. Our God is the essence of justice. And that manifests itself in the fairness of his command here. Men ought not to fight one another. Young men understand that. In absolutely every instance of two men fighting, sin is at root. It might be, as seems to be the case in this instance, a sin on both sides. The two men were quarreling. They allowed their passions to escalate beyond their self-control. That's sinful. Where it might be the sin of just one, forcing the other to defend himself. But again, sin is at the root. And so God commands a consequence for that sin which is fair, which is just. A physical wound leaves a man helpless, therefore the one who made him helpless helps him. God is fair, he is just, and he wants his justice to reflect his character. That brings us to verse 20. A case that's exceedingly similar except for one major difference. The man who is struck, or the woman who is struck, is the slave of the one who strikes. And in a very real sense, that makes it worse. Because the slave owner has power, has authority over the slave. Power to use the slave for profit, yes, but power also to command and to manipulate. And with power comes responsibility. The one who has power and authority is obligated to protect and care for those under him. That's the case whenever a person has power, has authority over another. That additional power brings an obligation to protect, to guard, to care for. To use that power in a way that brings harm is sinful. However, in places where slaves are owned, God knew that that power would be misused at times. And so God provides for that. Now understand, a slave owner was not free to treat his slaves in any way he wished in Israel. But in the rest of the world, he was. He was to treat that slave as his property. In 
most of the ancient Near East, the herding of a slave was not illegal. It was expected. That's how you kept them in line. That's how you reminded them where they were in the whole scheme of things. And if you went a little too far and you killed the slave, well, you know, tragedy because you lost one of your resources, but it happened. Because that slave belonged to you, they had no rights, they had no power, they had no recourse to justice. But God says no, that slave, regardless of his standing in society, regardless of the the poverty that landed him in slavery, he bears my image. He was made to bear my image, and therefore you cannot turn a blind eye to his harm. However, he is a slave, and that makes a difference. So if he is killed, then he shall be avenged. It doesn't matter that he was a slave. It doesn't matter that the one who hit him was his owner. That owner shall be put to death for taking the life of one who bears the image of God. Period. End of sentence. Again, that was radical in the ancient world. But it wasn't radical to God because he told them right after the flood, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And that doesn't depart just because a man enters slavery or a woman. But what if the slave survives? Well, in that case, we're told there will be no vengeance for the slave's injury. Even if he only survives a few days, because that demonstrates that the owner did not intend to kill him. But that's not to say that the slave owner would not face a consequence. Verse 21 says the slave is his money. You see, slaves were purchased at monetary expense. And that purchase was intended as an investment that would render more income to the owner. The fact that he put his slave out of commission by hitting him was, in essence, a self-imposed fine, a self-imposed monetary loss, and it was exceedingly just. He abused his slave, now that slave will earn him no money. That's justice. The slave owner will suffer for causing harm to his slave, And the suffering will come in a manner that emphasizes the wrongness of what he did, the nature of what he did. Nor was that necessarily all. If we drop down to the end of our text, verses 26 and 27, we have the situation where the slave is grievously wounded. He's not just knocked out of his senses a bit. He loses an eye. He loses a tooth. There's something that happens to him that causes a permanent disfigurement or injury. And in that case... God says he shall let the slave go. Again, as a punishment, this is effectively just. The the owner will lose the income that he would have derived from that slave. He will lose even the deposit of of his investment. And at the same time, the slave will get retribution. Because very likely he sold himself into slavery because of his debts, because of his poverty. Those debts would have been paid off. That impoverishment would have been taken care of when he sold himself into slavery. But now he gets to go free because he will live with this disfigurement from that point on. Therefore, now he gains his freedom. Again, recognize this is radical for the culture in which it was given. 
Those cultures saw slaves as property to be used however the owner desired. But the true God cares about all of his image bearers, regardless of their place in society. So when one who bears his image is harmed, God demands justice. In fact, this goes further. Because as I said, slaves were particularly vulnerable in those societies. They had no rights, they had no property, they had no value in the eyes of society except the value of their work. Slave owners, on the other hand, were powerful implicitly. They were rich, right? Or at least fairly well-to-do. They were the ones you didn't criticize. They were the ones you didn't hold accountable. But God shows here that He is not a respecter of persons. His justice applies to all, the rich and the poor alike, the powerful and the neglected equally. God brings vengeance even for a lowly slave. Psalm 72 tells us, God delivers the needy when he calls, the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. There's a lesson in that for us. We have that phrase, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. What that means is the one... who's able to make his grievance well known. That's the one we make sure gets justice. But the poor, the homeless, the weak, the disenfranchised, they they aren't a squeaky wheel. They can be ignored in the eyes of society, and they often are. I'll mention this again in a minute, but mention it in prayer, too. January is the month we normally think of the unborn, and we should. It's the month in which that infamous court case of Roe v. Wade was issued. And there are none who are more easy for society to overlook than the ones whom they can't see because they're within the body of another. But God says you may not ignore them. And you may not fail to give them justice. It's fashionable in our society to say, well, you know, abortion should be rare, but safe. But abortion is never safe. It always results in someone murdered. It's just a person that we can't see, a person who can't cry out on their own, a a person not much different than a slave in ancient society. And God says you shall not, you must not ignore justice for that one. And that justice must be equitable, it must be right, it must be just. And we see that. We see that in the next section. Here we have a case where the one who is wounded again, is in that society sort of overlooked. It's a mother, a woman. But God wants us to have compassion on those mothers when they are mauled. Again, we have two men who are fighting. And in their 
lack of self-control, in their anger, in their hatred, in their self-centered focus, they wound an expectant mother. Now, we're not told how this happened because that doesn't matter. It may be that she was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. It may be that she sought to intervene and break up the fight. It doesn't matter. She gets hurt, hurt badly enough that the child or children come out. Now, that might mean that she's early in her pregnancy and the wound causes a miscarriage. It might mean she was nine months plus along and uh, this just prompted the labor. It doesn't matter. Their act caused it. And this demonstrates, the fact that God separates this case out demonstrates that mothers have a particularly high place in God's sight, and they should. They always have. After all, a mother is the one who brings forth an image-bearer of God. And she does so in a way that is inherently, implicitly selfless, giving of her own health and her own strength and of her own time and of even her own body and nutrients to nurture this child within her. And then after the moment of birth, her work's not done. It's just really begun because now she has, that, that child is going to be continually dependent upon her in ways that yeah, dad can help a little bit, but in a lot of ways he can't. And so God has particular respect for this expectant mother. Now when she's hit, one of two things again is going to happen. Either there is lasting injury, lasting harm, or there's not. The child comes forth, but mother is fine, baby is fine. And we might be tempted to say, whew, okay, well, that turned out okay after all. But God says no. Because in their selfishness, in their passion, in their carelessness, they harmed one who should be at the forefront of their protective efforts. And that can't go unnoticed. And so the father and husband gets to set the fine which the judges then will approve and administer. That is not insignificant. Think about the pain, the suffering, the worry, the fear. It might have only been two hours, ten hours, twenty-four hours before they found out that everything was well. But those were the longest two or ten or twenty-four hours of their lives. And so God says they will be fined, a fine set by the father who suffered through it with his wife. But what if? What if there is harm? Well, that's what we see in verses 23 through 25. And I saved that for the last uh, intentionally because what is set forth there is applied in particular to this case of a mother who is wounded, who is mauled, but it sets forth a general principle for the first time that will be revisited through the Mosaic Law. For example, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21, this principle is applied to the situation of false witnesses. In Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20, it's applied to all cases of non-fatal injury. The principle has come to be known as the lex talionis, the law of retribution. 
And in it, we see God's standards for a suitable sentence. And that's the point we end on. You see, the heart of the lex talionis is pure justice. It's justice that rests on the principle that within the crime itself is the pattern for its punishment. What was done to the victim will be applied now to the perpetrator. There's no excess in such justice, but neither is there leniency. And so we read, If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Notice well, there is no limiting uh, provision there that is based on social class, either of the victim or of the accused. That was something that was extremely common in ancient cultures. And although it is not usually built into the law today, we still see it and we mock it. See, in ancient cultures, what they would do is they would say, life for life, or a fine. An exceptional fine, but a fine. And that fine would allow the rich and the powerful and those with great resources to escape the actual punishment. Now, we don't do that in our law. We just have a law that has become so complex and so filled with loopholes that only those who can afford a really good attorney can manage to find them, but they can find them. And they can get out of it, getting just a slap on the wrist for what a poor person or a person with less resources would have to suffer for many years. God says no. It doesn't matter what the social class of the perpetrator is, nor does it matter the social class of the one who is struck, the one who is wounded, the one who is hurt. Our God is just. And therefore He demands justice. For those who strike those who bear his image. And at the same time, this standard of punishment limits the punishment that is permitted. That's important because we have a tendency as sinful men to want to go above and beyond when we're the ones who are harmed. A man touches my wife, I want to beat him. A man bruises my child, I want to break his arm. A man kills my brother, I want his whole family dead. But God says no. Justice will be fair. Your anger must not escalate it. You may not kill a man simply for harming someone. You may not beat a man simply for offending someone. Justice must be suitable. It must be fair or it misrepresents God. But it must be served. As the victim is harmed, so must the perpetrator The assailant may not get merely a slap on the wrist for something that was exceptionally serious. Now, to be clear, there's some debate among scholars over the lex talionis. There are many who claim that this was never intended to be taken literally, with the exception of life for life. They will claim that It was simply intended to demonstrate that a serious offense demands a serious sentence, period. But that God didn't really expect the courts to order a man's eye to be gouged out because his action caused the loss of another person's eye. And they point to verses 26 and 27 as evidence of that. A slave lost an eye or lost a tooth, but the slave owner did not 
consequently get the same. They just were forced to release the slave. Maybe. Certainly, that's the way that uh, some applied it. But folks, I think we need to take seriously what God's law says, as it says it, and not look for excuses to limit it. God wants justice to be equitable, to be fair, to be just. That's the point. And we may not soften that requirement governmentally. Personally, we may. Because that's the other thing that biblical scholars will do, is they will point, not incorrectly, to the Sermon on the Mount. And how Jesus said, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well, etc. And they say, well, you know, in doing that, Jesus abrogated this lex talionis, this law of retribution. He said that is no longer to be valid. But that's not what's happening there. You see, the Sermon on the Mount was intended to correct the misapplications of God's law that were common among the Bible scholars of that day. And in that day, what was happening is that the Pharisees and the scribes, they were delighting in justice and retribution. And they were applying it strictly, more strictly than it was intended. And so while this was given as a governmental statute meant to guide the magistrate in executing justice. They were saying, you can't forgive a man who has harmed you unless retribution is brought about individually on a person-to-person basis. See, they were prizing justice above all else. And Jesus says we should prize mercy even more because God has forgiven you rather than demanding that every penny be paid. And you should delight to forgive others, bearing the cost yourself. That's not saying anything. Notice it's a second person singular, you. That's not saying anything about the magistrate, about the government, about the judge. It's saying you as an individual. If someone slaps you on the cheek, you are not required to slap him back. But you may turn to him the other cheek and prefer to be merciful. But for the government... For the magistrate, Romans 13 declares that God expects them to be his arm of vengeance, to demonstrate his justice. And folks, that's an application of this. While we individually are called to be merciful, and we must be as those who have received mercy, we also must call our government to be just, and they are not. We live in an age that has forgotten the principles of God's word. Murderers, having taken multiple lives, languish with free food and free housing and free medical care, accomplishing nothing, doing nothing for years until they are released to spend their golden years in freedom. While those who commit relatively small offenses are incarcerated 
forcing their families to suffer for decades. It's not fair, it's not just, it's not biblical, it's not right. And we, with the justification, with the authority of God's word, need to go before our magistrate, need to go before our lawmakers and our judges and demand that they do not what is politically appropriate, but what is biblically just. We need to call on them to serve God and to reflect His justice. And at the same time, we need to recognize we won't see it this side of glory. But yet this passage brings us comfort there because it shows us God does embody justice. And so even when our magistrates are unjust, even when we don't see justice carried out in this world, we know that God will force every man, woman, child, everyone who has ever lived to come before His throne and they will experience justice, true justice. Last point, that's pretty sobering. Because truth be told, we all deserve that justice, don't we? But praise God that through Jesus Christ, God has made himself to be not only the just God, but also the justifier of the one who trusts in Christ, who suffered all that we deserved so that we could escape without compromising justice. Jesus suffered and died on the cross, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the essence of hell, because that's what you deserved. That's what I deserved. And if I'm trusting in Christ, then he did it for me. What a blessing. What a Savior. So use this passage to remind you how just God is and to call the magistrate to do what is right and what is just. But use this passage also to remind you of how amazingly gracious and merciful and good God has been to deliver us who deserved His wrath. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have been more merciful than we could ever have hoped. And we pray, Father, that You would teach us both to reflect your justice in society, but also to reflect your mercy to those who wound, who harm, who offend us. And Father, we pray this all with thanksgiving for your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.